Good morning, church. It's so good to see all of you, sing with all of you this morning. I'm feeling very good, very excited to get into God's word. Amen. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning, still looking at these parables and the gospel according to Luke. So if you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 12, we'll have the words up on the screen as well. But especially this morning, if you've got a Bible, we're going to be uh, looking at some other passages. So it'd be good to have your Bible open. So Luke chapter 12, this is beginning in verse 13. This is uh, a a familiar parable. If you are um, at all adjacent to Christianity or if you've been in the Word for any time, you've probably heard this story. And I was thinking, you know, for all of its familiarity, this one just never lacks punch. It uh, It always comes with a lot of force. It's always very convicting, but it's very important for us. It's very important for us this morning. So this is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Let me read this passage to you now. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, you know we need this word. You know we need this word this morning, and so I pray that you would use your word by your Holy Spirit, that you would use my mouth, you would give us all open ears, open hearts to hear this word with faith and to repent and to respond to believe, and to give you everything, because you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if someone asked you, I wonder how you would answer this question, what does the church most need to be on guard against today? What does the church, maybe in America or in the world, what do we most need to be on guard against Maybe before you came in this morning, you would have answered that question referring to some false teaching or some cultural trend, and and that would be a good answer. That would be a biblical answer. The Bible is very clear that there are always going to be false teachings that we need to contend with as the church, as the pillar and buttress of the truth. We do need to be on guard against false teachings that are contrary to the gospel. But what we can't do is let our concern for threats that arise out there distract us from being on guard against threats that, threats that will arise from in here. We are always fighting a two-front war, church. 
And this morning, Jesus is calling our attention to our own hearts. He says in verse 15, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. This picks up on a major theme that runs through the whole gospel according to Luke. I hope as we've been in this series, you've had some time to read the gospel according to Luke. If not, there's still time. Just read the whole book. And what you would see is that this book has 24 chapters. And by my count, 19 of those chapters have some reference to money or to riches or to the wealthy or to greed or to the poor. I think that would be a good exercise for you. Go read the gospel according to Luke and take a certain colored pen and just mark all of those words in the Bible or those related ideas and then you can step back and you would see it's practically on every page of this book. And we've already seen it in this study in the parables. If you remember the parable of the four soils in Luke chapter eight, one of those soils, the soil with the thorns, Jesus says the thorn represent what? the cares and riches and pleasures of this life that threaten to choke out the word of God before it bears fruit. And this theme in Luke, it builds and builds all the way to chapter 18. In chapter 18, there is the the rich ruler that comes to Jesus, but he chooses not to follow Jesus. He turns down Jesus because the text says he had many possessions and he didn't want to give it up. And that, in Luke chapter 18, leads to Jesus' famous pronouncement in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, does that sound like a threat to you? Yes. And it's something that we all need to take very seriously. So we listen to our Lord Jesus, and he says this morning, be on guard against covetousness. This is our first point. Be on guard against covetousness. So if we begin in verse 13, and just like in the parable of the Good Samaritan, this parable too arises out of a a situation where somebody asks Jesus a question, has an interaction with someone. The beginning of chapter 12 says that many thousands of people had gathered to hear Jesus. In verse 13, it says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Luke doesn't give us any more details about what's going on in this dispute. We, we could go a number of different ways in this. We know that it was customary at this time, according to even Mosaic law, that when a parent passed away, their inheritance, their estate passed on to their children, the sons in their family. And the firstborn son received a double portion. They were uh, given kind of the, they were the executor of the estate in a way. They were meant to carry on the estate of their family. But the ideal, when, when the parents passed on their inheritance to their sons, sons would be that the sons wouldn't break up the inheritance, that they would actually all live together on that estate, working together, perpetuating the family inheritance. And I think that's what Psalm 133 verse 1 has in mind. It says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And we don't know what's going on, but for some reason, these brothers don't want to dwell in unity. At least one of them doesn't. He wants his share of the inheritance Now, it kind of reminds us of the parable of the two sons in Luke 15, where there, one of the younger sons, the younger son goes to the father and asks for his inheritance, even before the father has died. So here, there is someone asking for an inheritance, 
But he brings Jesus into the dispute. Why does he come to Jesus? There's this crowd here to listen to Jesus. Why does he come to Jesus and ask for help with this dispute? Well, as I said, there were lots of Mosaic laws governing how the inheritance was passed on. And so if there was a disagreement, if there was a dispute, you would have to go to an expert in the Mosaic law to get a ruling. The, they would kind of act as a civil judge. In this case, it would be a rabbi or a teacher. That's what he calls Jesus. So he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, here's this dispute. Please settle the matter, and Jesus' response is fascinating. In verse 14, he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus rebukes him. This is a rebuke. He's essentially saying, man, that's not my business. That's not my problem. And I thought this is really interesting in light of what we looked at last week, where Jesus tells us, ask anything, and you will receive and I, and I stress, do you remember that? that? That God is never too busy for you. He always has time for your problems. He's always there for you. And yet he come, here comes this man and, and Jesus seems to not have any time for him. But it's, it's not because Jesus doesn't care. It's not because he doesn't have time. It's because this man is asking for the wrong reasons. To quote James 4.3 again, this man is asking, but he's asking wrongly to spend it on his own passions. In fact, he's not even asking. Did you see that? He doesn't ask Jesus anything. He tells Jesus what to do. Jesus, tell my brother what to do. He, he's not praying, your will be done. He comes to Jesus saying, my will be done. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus is not about building other people's kingdoms. He is only about building his own. We think about the words of Jesus at the beginning of the gospel according to Luke when, when he's still a, a young child, a young man. He says, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? If you want to be about your own business, if you want to be about building your own worldly kingdom, that's fine, but leave Jesus out of it. Verse 15, Jesus said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know this word, covet? To covet, in English the word to covet, it actually, uh, it just means to desire something earnestly, to want something very strongly. So in older English, it, it could go either way. It could be a positive word or a negative word. So have you ever heard somebody say, I covet your prayers? That ever trip anybody else up? It's like, oh, I thought coveting was a bad thing. And now you're saying, no, it just means to want something earnestly. In the Old Testament, in Hebrew, that's how that word worked. It could go either way. So you have Psalm 19.10. It says, God's word is to be more to be desired, more to be coveted than gold. But then you also get the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not desire what? Your neighbor's house. Nor shall you covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You guys remember that's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Just. But what's it saying? It's saying it's not the problem. Desiring is not the problem. You can desire good things. The problem is to desire the wrong things, to desire things that are not yours and that should never be yours, to desire things that God has not given to you. And in the Old Testament use of this word, it was especially sinful to let that wrong desire lead you into sin. So to lead you into gaining that thing that you shouldn't have been wanting in the first place through some unjust means. 
or to let your possession of that thing that you desire wrongly lead you to turn away from God, to trust in that thing more than you trust in God. That is sin. Proverbs chapter 30, it contains a profound prayer to this point. Proverbs chapter 30, verses seven to nine says this. Two things I ask of you, Deny them not to me before I die. He's talking to God. God, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Don't give me poverty or riches. Give me what is needful for me. A lot of scholars think that's the basis for Jesus' instruction in the Lord's Prayer or the Kingdom Prayer. He taught us to pray, give us our daily bread. Don't give me less than that, but, but I don't need more than that. Give me what is needful for me. And on a very practical note, Praying that prayer in Proverbs 30, it assumes that the person praying it has actually taken time to consider what is needful for them. What do they need? Feed me with food that is needful for me. The person praying that kind of prayer has considered what is enough for me. I think all of us, We all have the the lower limit of that prayer established. We know what we need. We know what we can't go beneath. I need this much to pay my mortgage. I need this much to keep sending my kids to this school. I need this much to get all of these bills covered. We always have the lower limit set in what is needful for me. But I have heard very few people set that top limit. This is all I need. This is enough for me. And the wonderful thing about the scriptures is that they're, they're not overly prescriptive in that. I can't tell you what that upper limit is, but I can tell you that there's probably a limit. Because as this person saying this prayer in Proverbs 30 says that there is a very real danger for us to have too much. And when we have too much, we forget the Lord. We forget the Lord. And so to pray a prayer for daily bread is to consider, God, what do I actually need? What do I need for my family? What do I need for your kingdom? What is that limit so that I can understand what to do with what else you have given me? And praying a prayer like that, doing that work, having that conversation in your family, that's an incredible guard against covetousness. And this is the word that Jesus warns us against. Be on guard against. That's a military term. Don't let this enemy get into your gate. Be on guard against covetousness. By the time of the New Testament, when Jesus is saying these words, they had a word in Greek. The word here, covetousness, and it only captures the bad sense of that word. So Jesus is saying this bad sense, be on guard against this desire of wanting more and more. That's what this word means. It's wanting more money. It's wanting more possessions. It's wanting more power. It's often just translated greed. Be on guard against greed. It's a word that comes up again and again when you read the epistles and those lists of sinful behaviors that we're supposed to have nothing to do with. You think of Colossians 3, verse 5. 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's what Paul says. Covetousness is idolatry. It's valuing stuff, trusting stuff more than God. And Jesus knows that's what's motivating this man that's coming to ask him to settle this dispute. This man is asking out of covetousness. He sees a desire for more. He's asking for more. He will even use Jesus to get more, and Jesus will have nothing to do with it. But notice this, verse 15. says, Jesus said to them. He's not addressing this warning just to this man. He has opened it up to everybody that's listening. This command is in the plural. Be on guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Possessions cannot give you life, is what Jesus is saying. Or as we say, money can't buy happiness. I heard somebody else say, money can't buy happiness, but everyone wants to figure that out for themselves. Because we all think we're different, right? We all think, no, 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 this isn't covered. If I had this, this isn't, it would actually, it would bring me happiness. It would, it would do enough for me. It would satisfy whatever it is that I want. But we know that that's not true, right? We've all been through this. I, I feel this every time I get a new phone. Every time. You know, because you go through that. You have the phone, and, and it's getting old, and it stops working, and it's like there's never enough memory for all your pictures, and then they make it so that the apps don't update anymore, and then you're finally like, okay, I got to get a new phone. It's slow. It's broken. It's cracked. It's been cracked for like three years and then you get a new phone. I get a new phone. I get a shiny new phone. And I can't help but look at it. You know, I hate to put a case on it. I just want to like, man, look at it. It's so, it's, so, it's so pretty. Like every time it comes out of my pocket, I'm like, yes. There's more than enough memory. I can do all this stuff I haven't been able to do. And how long does that last? I mean, I get a new phone and I'm like, finally, that phone problem is solved. I will never need a new phone for the rest of my life. And I know that they make phones so that they break on purpose, you know. I know that they don't tell me that they don't. They make it so that you have to buy a new one. It's called planned obsolescence. Have you heard of this? That they kind of factor that into the manufacturing of these machines, that they, that they go bad, that they wear out, so that you have to go and buy a new one. But friends, all of life is planned obsolescence. Everything in this life wears out. Everything in this life will fail to satisfy us because we're not made for this life. We are eternal beings and our possessions are dirt. They won't satisfy us eternally. We're not made for that. And so we always come to these things and we just keep trying over and over like this time, this thing, if I just had this, then, but it never works. And we know this and yet we just keep on trying. And this isn't a rich or poor thing. Everybody does this. If you're poor, you just think about all the things that you don't have. And you think, if I just had this, then. 
And if you're rich, you look at all the stuff you have and you say, it's still not working, so I need more, I need better, or I need something cooler than that, what that guy's got. But it never works. And that's what Jesus is saying. Life is not found in the abundance of your possessions. It's just not going to satisfy you. There are echoes of the book of Ecclesiastes running through this whole passage. Maybe you've picked up on that if you're familiar with Ecclesiastes. If you've never read the book of Ecclesiastes, especially if you're not a Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes. Maybe read it with a friend that you came with because there's some weird stuff in there. But the, the big point of the book of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon was the richest man who ever lived. And he didn't deny himself anything that he coveted. Anything that he wanted, he got it. And he kind of does this like an experiment to see if anything will work. And what's he say? It doesn't. Ecclesiastes 2, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was meaningless. It didn't work. It's like trying to catch the wind. There's nothing to be gained under the sun. That's true. No matter how much you get, no matter how much you have, it just kind of falls through your fingers and you need to get more, but it doesn't work. Life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. And yet Jesus is saying much more than this. Jesus is the better Solomon. And so he is calling our attention not only to what is under the sun, but what is beyond the sun. And he's saying, you will never be satisfied in this life by the abundance of your possessions. How much less would you be satisfied in eternal life by what you have now? Or to put it another way, your money is no good at the gates of heaven. You could just title this whole parable, you can't take it with you. I love that old adage, there are no trailer hitches on hearses. Whatever you have in this life, it's only as good as long as you have this life. And it's not even that good. But to spend your life, this life, so fixated on the things that you want, on the things that you desire, on the things that you're trying to get hold of and get more of, to spend your whole life focusing on those things and to not think about what comes after, to be so distracted by this world that you don't think about what's coming next, that's foolish. You're a fool. And that's not me saying it. It's Jesus. This is our next point. Verses 16 to 21, Jesus says, be rich toward God. Verse 16, he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. So he already has a large estate, this man. Now he's got a bumper crop. And notice the way that this is written. The man didn't do anything to make this happen. It doesn't say that he was especially hardworking and so it produced plentifully. It also doesn't say that he did anything unjustly. He didn't steal to make more money. It just just happened. This is weather. There's just circumstances outside of his control, but his land produced plentifully. It's like he got an unexpected promotion at work. Or it's like he won the lottery. It's like the government just started sending him checks every week. I don't, you know. In verse 17, he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. 
And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. On the surface, this doesn't seem that objectionable. You might see somebody today that's planning wisely. They're financially savvy. They're storing away. They're doing their Dave Ramsey. You say, good on you, man. Preparing for what's to come. You're living today. How does, what does Dave Ramsey say? Live like no one else today so that later you can live like no one else. That's just what he's doing. He's saying, okay, I've reached the later. And now I'm going to retire. I'm going to relax. I'm going to eat and drink and be merry. So as I say, on the surface, that doesn't look so bad, but, but do this. And you look back at, at this little monologue that he gives, or really it's called a soliloquy. So it's him sharing what his inward dialogue is, what his thoughts are. And just look at this little, ver- these verses of him talking to himself, and you could just circle all of the places where he says the word, I and my. These are my crops. These are my goods. What will I do. I will do this. There's no reference to God. He doesn't turn around and thank God for the bountiful crop that he received according to God's divine providence. And he doesn't ask God what God would want him to do in righteousness and in a desire to glorify God, what he would do with this extra money that he has received. No, this is all about me. Of course it is. I get more. It's, it's mine. I do with it what I want for my comfort, for my enjoyment, for my security. Look at verse 19 again. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Rest. That's what that word means. Rest. Eat, drink, be merry. I think it's really interesting. He's speaking to his soul. It's like Psalm 42, where the psalmist speaks good news to his own soul that's downcast. And here he's speaking to his own soul, only he's preaching a false gospel to himself. Soul, good news. We have money. We have lots of money. We have enough money for many years, so we can rest now. We don't have to be anxious anymore. We don't have to worry anymore. In fact, we can start enjoying these things that we haven't been enjoying, at least not as much as we want to. Soul, good news. But verse 20, God said to him. This is so interesting. Of all of the parables that Jesus tells, this is the only one where God is an explicit character. Other parables, there's characters that represent God. Here, it is just God, unfiltered. And I think that is so fitting because this man has clearly, this imaginary man has been clearly living his whole life without any reference to God. He's a functional atheist. And here comes God crashing into his world. God said to him, fool, this not your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? There are no atheists in the afterlife. Did you hear that? There are no atheists in the afterlife. Whatever you think today, when you die, you will see God. 
God will come crashing into your life and this man is going to die tonight. We shouldn't read this as God smiting this man for his covetousness. This is not God's punishment necessarily because this man has been so greedy. I think this is meant to be just a consideration of fate. We all die. We will all die. Psalm 139. Many other places in the Bible that say that all of our days are numbered. Every single one of them. I don't think our church needs a reminder of this. You don't know when your last day will come. But God does. And it will come. And when it comes, there's no asking for an extension. Just look at the way that verse 20 is written. God doesn't say, you're going to die tonight. He says, your soul is required of you tonight. The soul that you called mine, it's not your soul. It's God's soul. Your life is not even your own, much less your goods, much less your money. It's all God's. And it's that death that renders so much in this life meaningless. It's death that grants us perspective about what we're doing in this life, what we're working towards in this life, what we're staving up for in this life. Because what's the point? What's the point of so much of this if when when you're gonna die, you're not gonna take it with you? It really is just stuff and you're gonna leave it behind and you're gonna look forward to eternity. This man is looking forward to eternity and it's not looking good because God calls him a fool. I think by that we see, yes, he's a fool because he thought this stuff was so much more certain than it was, the stuff that he was hoping in and that he was working so hard for. Well, he doesn't even get to enjoy it. Because he's going to die. I mean, what, what meaninglessness that you, you spent all this time worrying and, and trying and striving for something that you weren't even guaranteed to, he thinks, I've got many years. And God says, no. What a fool to think that that was as certain as it was because it isn't. You don't have control over that. But I think it's more than that. I think when God calls him a fool, it's like the fool in Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This man has lived like there is no God. You step back to the, the scenario that this parable came out of, this man coming to Jesus and asking for him to settle his dispute. And, and it's so ironic that Jesus says to him that he's not his judge. Because we know what Jesus' meaning is. I'm not, I'm not a judge in a civil sense. I'm not, I'm not about that kingdom. I say it's ironic because he is the man's judge. He's all of our judges. That all of us are going to die. We're going to stand before this judge. And he's going to render according to each one of us, according to our works. To whether we have worshipped God faithfully, repented of our sins, sought to make God of ultimate value in our life, or if we haven't. And this man has not. And in fact, none of us have. All of us, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. There's no distinction. All of us have sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. And so when we stand before that judge, every one of us knows that there is a payment that has to be made. Remember what we started this service off with, Psalm 49, verses seven and nine. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. 
that he should live on forever and never see the pit? This man in the story, he was, he was a fool. He was a sinner. And now he stands before the judge and he knows that a ransom is due. The wages of sin is death. A payment has to be paid. And he's standing there before the judge with barns full behind him and hands empty in front of him. He's got nothing. He can't pay that price. And he goes down into the pit. And he'll go to hell. And now look at verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In the Jewish tradition, when, when a rabbi would give a parable, it would always have what's called a nimshal. And the nimshal, we would say, is like the moral of the story. It's the intended teaching of the story. Every parable has a moral. Often it is just implied. And so you have to have ears to hear. You have to kind of do the work to understand what is the teaching of this parable. But sometimes the teacher just comes out and says it, as Jesus does here. If you lay up treasure for yourself and are not rich towards God, you are like this man. That's what Jesus is saying. And you will share his fate. And you're like, man, that's really harsh. This is really heavy. Jesus is coming with, with this intensity, calling us fools. But then you have to remember what what Jesus is actually holding out to us, which is true life. This is real life. You think of John 10, 10. Jesus says, I came that you may have abundant life. Real life, life to the full. Or you think of John eleven twenty five. 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. We think of Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, what? As a ransom, as a ransom for many. Amen. Who can stand before the judge and give a ransom for their own life? None of us can, but God has given us a ransom in his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's why Jesus is coming with this striking parable because he says, look, life is not found in the abundance of your possessions. Where is life found? In Christ. Amen. Abundant life. Eternal life. It's not in your stuff. It's in Jesus the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's it. This is it. So yeah, you better just get as much as, as you can of this life, because when you die, that's it. It's just out if the dead are not raised. But the dead are raised. We know the dead are raised. Because Jesus Christ came from heaven to offer his life, his life as a ransom for our life. He died on the cross to pay that payment that we have to pay for our sins. He had never sinned. And so he came and he said, I will be the substitute. I will give you everything that I have, the abundant life in your place so that you can live forever. And Jesus was raised. The dead are raised, brothers and sisters. 
And so we have the hope of eternal life. And so we don't have to say, we got to get as much in this life because there's nothing to look forward to. No, Jesus says, there's everything to look forward to. Eternal life. And you know what we're going to say to our souls in eternal life? Relax. Eat, drink, and be merry because this is what we're in it for, not this stuff. We've got eternal life and a new heavens and a new earth where we have every satisfaction that we would ever want, every pleasure, every desire perfectly satisfied from God, with God. That's what we hope in. And you're a fool. You're a fool to live for this life when that is there for you, waiting. That can be yours or you get hell. This man made a bad investment. This man made the wrong choice. And that's the force of this story. But it's curious how Jesus ends this teaching in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and isn't rich towards God. They're not rich towards God. So obviously this is about more than just repenting and believing in Jesus before you die. But if that's all you take away this morning, praise God. You don't know when your day is coming. And you can make peace with God right now. You can reach out and accept that payment that he's offering in your place through Jesus Christ. You just have to believe and you will have eternal life. Because your soul might be required of you tonight. That's true. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how healthy you are. You never know. But when Jesus says that we are to be rich toward God, what he means is that those of us who have accepted that offer of eternal life, who have found life in Christ, that changes the way we treat our money today. That changes the way that we view our possessions. That changes the way that we view our barns. And so we have to ask, well, what does it mean to be rich toward God? I think about uh, Martin Luther. He famously said that when someone is converted, there's actually three conversions that happen. And he says, not always at the same time. First, there's the conversion of their head, then there's the conversion of their heart, and then there's the conversion of their wallet. And it's that important. How you treat your possessions, how you view your possessions, it proves what you put your faith in. Jesus is saying, if you have really believed in this, if you've really entered into the kingdom, then you're rich towards God. And what we shouldn't do is now just dismiss and go to our community groups and talk about what do you think it means to be rich toward God? What we should do is what I said last week. Look at this parable in context. Because if you've got a red letter Bible, I looked in a red letter Bible. Not that there's anything special about red letter Bibles, but this whole chapter is basically in red. Jesus ends this parable, but he doesn't stop talking. And all of chapter 12 is about how people in the kingdom, the kingdom of God, Look at the things of this world. Treat their possessions in this world. And so if you will, if you'll let me, we've got a little bit of time left. I want to go through the rest of this chapter just really briefly and point some things out to you because I think Jesus tells us exactly what it means to be rich towards God throughout the rest of chapter 12. If you see first, in verse 22, he begins his famous discourse about anxiety. He says, don't be anxious about your life about what you'll eat, about your body, about what you'll wear. Life is more than food. It's more than clothing. Verse 24, he says, consider the ravens. They don't sow, they don't reap, they don't have storehouses or barns. Isn't that a great little tieback? Jesus is so good. They don't have barns, birds don't have barns, and yet God feeds them. 
of how much more value are you than the birds? How much of our covetousness is really the result of anxiety? We want more because we're worried. Are we going to be able to provide? Are we going to be secure? Are we going to be safe? Are we going to be able to take care of our kids? And so we reach out for more to try and protect ourselves because we're afraid. But that's idolatry. That's trusting in that stuff to be your savior. But we have a savior. God loves you more than a bird. If you're God's, this is what we looked at last week. If you're God's and God is your father, he knows what you need. He's going to provide everything that you need. It may not feel good. <laughs> it may not feel like he is giving you what you need, but he knows better than you do what you need, and he does give you all that is needful for you. And so that means everything that you have, everything that you lack, you can be content because your father loves you. He loves you more than the ravens. Verse 25 of chapter 12, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that? Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Richness towards God begins with us understanding God's richness towards us. Richness towards God begins with understanding God's richness towards us. God has given you everything. Don't be like that man who had the abundant crop and, thinks that, and thought that that just happened out of nowhere and that happened for him primarily. No, God has given you everything that we need and everything that you have. It's from God. If you have a house, God gave you your house. If you have a good job, God gave you that job. If you have a good degree, God gave you that degree. Anybody eat breakfast this morning? God gave you that breakfast. I'm very happy to see that you're all wearing clothes. God gave you your clothes. It's all from God. And just stop and think. I mean, we're so ungrateful. You know there are people that don't have clothes. There are people that did not get food. And it's not because they're intermittent fasting. They can't afford it. You are here, you are blessed. And if you are blessed, it's because God has blessed you. Be grateful. God has been rich towards you and he will keep on being rich towards you. Okay, you can trust that. And so when you know that, when you believe that, that we lack nothing, especially that we lack nothing necessary for eternal life because Jesus, who was rich, became poor for our sake so that we might become rich, that we might inherit with him, we have everything. So verse 29 of chapter 12, don't seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink. Don't be worried for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and all of these things will be added to you. Seek his kingdom. Seek, seek that. Seek what we look forward to. Seek eternal life. Do what you have to do now to secure that for yourself and do what you can do now to secure that for others to bring that future reign of Christ to bear today, to bring the reign of Christ more fully in your own heart and to bring the reign of Christ more fully in the lives of others.
That's what you're here for. Church, that's why God has not required your soul of you yet. If you're still here, this is why. So that you can seek his kingdom. So that you can worship him more today, that you can glorify him more today, and that you can do what Jesus left us to do. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's seeking the kingdom. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so go and have other people submit to that authority. Go to other people and make disciples of them. And God says, I'll give you everything that you need on the way. So look, everything that you have, this isn't just some windfall. This isn't something for you to just, oh, wait, great, now we can upgrade and get a bigger house. Okay, this isn't for you. It's for God. And the purposes of God are for you to go and make disciples. So if you have a nice house, if you have multiple houses, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but those houses are the kingdom's houses. Those are the king's houses. And you use those houses to tell unbelievers about Jesus and to further that mission. If you have a good job, praise God for that. If you have reached that upper limit and you have a lot more past that, praise God for that. You know what that money's for? It's for us to send missionaries around the world. It's for us to make sure that there's somebody that stands here every Sunday to preach the gospel. It's money for you to make sure that those people that haven't heard about Jesus, they hear about Jesus, even in your own neighborhood. It's money that you can walk out that door and you can go talk to the CareNet people and you can make sure that women that are going through the hardest thing that they'll probably ever go through, they have somebody there to love them and somebody there to tell them about Jesus. That's what your money's for. And if you have enough money to retire, that's great. I'm not against retirement, but it's not your retirement. It's the king's retirement. And so you use your retirement, you use all that free time that you get for the kingdom. I always think, I mean, you can't think about retirement and think, not think about Pastor Randy. He's one of our lay elders. He's the only retired lay elder that we have. Boy, that's the king's retirement. He and his wife, they just spend all that time that they have discipling people. Randy's discipling like 100 dudes right now. You're not going to take any of this stuff with you. But you're going to see all of those souls in heaven. That's an investment. That's an investment that never goes bad. That's an investment that always returns. Seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom and all this other stuff's going to be added to you. Don't worry about that. Don't be worldly, greedy, materialistic people. Seek the kingdom and I'll make sure you have everything you need until the day your soul is required of you. And then you'll come up to that throne and I'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. Enter into the joy of your master. Look at verse 32. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, where, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I'm sure if, you, if you've heard this quote, it's already come to mind this morning, the famous words of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot was an American missionary in Ecuador, and he went to go share the gospel him and four other men to go share the gospel with an unreached Amerindian tribe in Ecuador called the Warani. And right as he got there, he was killed. He gave everything to tell people about Jesus, to bring the reign of Christ to people that, that hadn't heard it, 
for people that didn't have abundant life, didn't have eternal life. He gave up everything to try and secure it for them. And even though he died, it worked. Many in that tribe received Jesus after that because his wife just kept on going. But many years before he died, he wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May we all be as rich towards God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the abundant life that's in Jesus, what's stored up for us, the treasure that is stored up for us, treasure beyond our wildest dreams. God, make that more real for us this morning. Make heaven more real for us. Help us to understand that that is the the best investment that we can make. That is where our hearts belong. And God, change our hearts in this life. Change my heart. Help me to not covet what I can't even hold on to. And God, help us to be rich towards you. Help us to be rich towards others. Help us to use our, our good gifts that you have given to us to bring about your kingdom more and more until that day where you bring it in full when Jesus comes again. And we ask this all in his name. Amen.